This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are excited, as always, to have you with us as we explore the intersection of business and social impact. Dollars and Change is live on Sirius XM Channel 132 every Thursday from 8 to 10 Eastern and replayed throughout the week. We're excited for today's conversation. Our first guest is live here in the studio, which always makes it a fun start to the day. So I'm going to give you a quick rundown of our guests before we jump in. Cheryl and my two-year-old will fight over who's the biggest fan of our first guest, Vikram Dewan, CEO of the Philadelphia Zoo. Vic, we're delighted to have you in studio here with us today. Thank you so much. So um, let's start with a little bit of career history, because I bet when people imagine CEO of the zoo, they're thinking, you know, in sort of the, the khaki you, you know, suit from day one, maybe you were a zookeeper, but your career path is uh, is a little less um, that direction and more coming from the business side. So tell us about it. Yes, that's right. Um, so came to the zoo uh, 12 years ago after a 28-year career, sometimes we say, in the not-for-profit world from the dark side, <laughs> <laughs> from the financial services industry. Um, so I'm a very, very proud uh, Wharton grad from the, the class of 78 and um, entered into the financial services world and banking. And As then, so many do. Yep. And then in 2006, uh, came over to the zoo. And so it has been, as many have said, a non-traditional career path. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, that That's becoming the new normal. Right. At yeah. least with the, the subsector of the population we engage with, this it's is starting to become paths. the narrative. So tell us what triggered that shift after 25 years. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, the time that I was in the financial services industry w- was was profound and, and so meaningful, impactful to me personally. I uh, had an opportunity both to um, to work here in Philadelphia for um, a premier financial services organization and then uh, overseas. And um, uh, throughout my career, I had an opportunity not only to be involved in things relating to financial matters, but then all of the aspects that relate to that. So human resources, investment banking, um, things relating to people and people management and the like. And so it was a tremendous opportunity and great grounding. That said, um, you know, one reaches a point in one's life when one starts to look at things around, you know, what is it that I want, um, uh, you know, the rest of my life to be about? What is it that I want my career to be about? I will say that in 2006, I couldn't have imagined that it would have led me to the uh, yeah, zoo. That was not, that. So when I reached that decision about I want to do something different, I don't think I thought that it was going to be about the zoo. Uh, but in many ways, it was a it was a perfect time and a perfect fit. Uh, the zoo was going through a reevaluation and reassessment. Um, it was looking at the key financial drivers as well as the key mission drivers um, and chose for the first time in its 150-year history – to identify a leader who came from outside of the zoo world. So, I mean, that, that was very intentional of the board then, right? That they were it really was. looking for non-traditional to sort of shake things up a little bit and, and put in a new direction. It was, Cheryl. And I think what the board had identified was that the key issue that the board, uh, the zoo faced was not issues around animal care and animal well-being, that we actually had some tremendous staff that understood that, understood our impact and the work that we did around conservation and saving species and the like. The key strategic 
strategic challenge the zoo was facing was the issues around financial sustainability. That we were and are and continue to be an organization with a long-term mission, but with a capitalization structure that doesn't match that uh, and a business uh-huh, model uh-huh. that doesn't deliver that right. on a consistent basis. And so they said, okay, we're going to try something different here. Yeah. And I think a lot of our listeners who are maybe in that first leg of their career where they, they're thinking about what the next act might be, would be curious to know, you know, were you on the board? Was there any sort of foundation or relationship of making this pivot? Or did you set yourself up by starting to sort of get engaged with different impact organizations to see what was next for you? Any advice in that dimension? You know, what makes the change curious is that, um, you know, growing up, I was not always a zoo fan. Um, And I lived in places around the world where I would say that Zoos and animal well-being in zoo settings were not of the standard Mm -hmm. that I felt comfortable with, that aligned with my own values and my own sense of ethics. And so for many years... Uh, being at a zoo was not something very comfortable for me. Got it. And, and this so, is sort of, I've heard it referred to as like the circus and cage era. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You and couldn't so, really feel great. That's right. Yeah. That, that's a great way to describe it, Sandy. And so as, you know, thinking about the change, the element that really drew me to the zoo was the notion of the impact that the zoo has in the community. It has, it's the most heavily d- uh, visited destination in the in the Philadelphia area. Is that's it? Amazing. Yep. Yeah. We have over 1.2 million visitors a year. But what makes it really particularly impactful is the diversity of the guests and the visitors that come there. And we're embedded in a very, very critical part of West Philadelphia in terms of the neighborhoods that surround us. And so in terms of the things that that activated my interest in being involved with the zoo, um, it was um, as much about community and community interaction. It was Mm -hmm. about impact on children and families as much as it then became about the issues around animal and animal well-being. And and that notion of sort of not being comfortable with zoos and, and what it is about animals that could be in a zoo setting, I think has very much inspired us to have an organization that puts animal well-being first. Mm-hmm. What is it that in every single decision we do inspires us to think, is that decision first in the best interest of the animals? And if it is, then how do we then design around the issues or the visitor and the experience and the like? Incredible. It's hard to know where to start with this conversation because an organization like the zoo, when if you think about the social impact, which you have at length, you've got the animals, you've got the guests, you've got the neighborhood interaction, you've got the sustainability and sort of eco footprint. You stepped into this role and had the challenge of assessing all these things, making strategic decisions about sort of where to invest your time. How do you de- how do you decide sort of what to focus on when there's so much opportunity for impact? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, um, in so many ways, uh, these last several years have been just a wonderful journey of really thinking about how to address that across the entire range of issues. I would say that the first order of business was create the business model that can create a financially sustainable organization. It's great to think about what you want to do. It's great to think about the impact you can have. But in so many ways, the impact is longer term. It's it's in its in the way in which you think about it and you measure it, it's longer term. And if you don't have longer term financial sustainability capital structure underneath you and a business model to match it, I think you can dream and then you run out of gas very quickly. And so the first thing that we needed to do was really get our business model in good order. And so we chose as a not-for-profit to take a path that I think is different than many other nonprofits, which is that we would build our business model in a manner where 
100% of our operating expenses could be covered by earned income. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that was very conscious on our part for two reasons. I'm worried that a few nonprofit executives in their car <laughs> might have just swerved yeah, here. Right now. That, is a, think... that is bold and unique. Yeah. And I think, I think the reason for that is twofold. One is it forces you to think about your relevance and your impact to your core audiences and making sure that you're meeting the test of the market. And I don't know how else to put it, but that bluntly. Um, And so uh, what programs are you designing? What experiences are you designing to do that? And then more fundamentally, a not-for-profit has two, sometimes three sources of of income. Um, One is the earned side. One is the philanthropic contributed side. And the third is what you have your investments and your earnings from your endowment. Um, If you are able to cover your core operating expenses from earned revenue, you can leverage your um, philanthropic dollars towards capital and programs, and you can make your donors your partners in your programming and your mission rather than feeling that they are simply seeing you as a grantee. And I think that that changes the way in which you engage with donors, um, and it changes the nature in which you can really be able to think about innovation bold ideas, risk-taking, new concepts from that perspective. So back to your question. So first stabilize the the financial model and then determine sort of where you want that impact to occur. And you think about uh, us and our uniqueness and who we are and sort of how we operate. We're a zoo in a dense urban environment. Yeah, and I was going to sit core in an urban environment. Yeah, absolutely. There are houses right adjacent. (laughs) Right Right adjacent. Yeah, it's amazing. So the question is, what are the challenges of the urban ecosystem right now that a zoo uniquely can uh, address? And what we're seeing, particularly over the course of the last decade, is a society that is increasingly divorced from the outdoors, from nature, from contact with wildlife, and more and more focused inwards, indoors, and behind screens. And the like, the likelihood of that group of individuals taking responsibility for the challenges of our planet, the biodiversity, the issues of sustainability, the issues of taking action to save resources and to save biodiversity, is not going to be yeah. as... Uh, present as, and as much of an imperative unless they're engaged in being able to do that in a meaningful way. And so the zoo plays an important role in that context from that perspective, starting with the individual. Then you can move to what is it you do in your neighborhood, what do you do in the larger in, um, communities, and then what is it that's your role in the world and the world of zoos in general. Fabulous. I've yeah. been asking a lot of questions. Yeah. I'm give Cheryl no, and, and I think that one of the things, I, I was going to bring up the point that you are right in the middle of an urban area. I mean, I, I live like a seven-minute walk from the zoo, right? And uh, it's, a, it's an area that's really uh, changing and developing, but still abuts one of the poorest areas in, in the city. Um, so one of the things when you're thinking about being in the community that way, I know that part of what you are thinking about at the zoo is how do we – how do we be more part of the community in innovative ways? So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think the first way to address that issue, Cheryl, is to start up with, well, why would you want to do that, uh-huh. right? Right, okay. I mean, at the end of the day, you're not a community development agency. You're a zoo. Right. Um, you have your own issues and challenges. What makes you think that uh, addressing the issues of the adjacent communities and neighborhoods around us is even something that's your problem, right, or your issue to address. And I think that in every situation you have to start with, what's the core question you're trying to answer? What is the key question? And I think that what we're seeing is that our ability to continue to grow and to be successful is going to be limited to the extent that people feel 
that the neighborhoods around the zoo are not safe, Mm -hmm. either not safe or not easily accessible. And so our pattern of growth and success depends on a healthier ecosystem around us. And the question is, how do we contribute to that? Um, There's a great um, uh, legacy uh, that our institute... Penn has had in University City and the way that they have transformed neighborhoods around them. But they've done it through a means of looking at it through housing and education and procurement. Those are not strategies that are going to work for a zoo that has a limited budget and number of people that we hire. And so what we thought was, how can we catalyze? How can we be catalytic in our impact Mm -hmm. on the neighborhoods? Mm -hmm. And what is the key asset that we're bringing to that? And what we came to the conclusion is, it's our visitorship. It's over a million people. And how can we catalyze that towards those outcomes? And I would give you a couple of examples of the way we're thinking about that. So one is transit. Um, we sit in a part of Philadelphia that has many, many transportation nodes, a river, trains, highway, but actually none of them stop there. Right. right? right. And so we've started to think about what is it that our record levels of attendance are now allowing us to do in terms of being able to cause transit, mass transit, to come to that part of Philadelphia and in turn create opportunities for people to get to employment uh, sources around the region. And so we can start to create opportunities for people to have access to new ways of thinking about job and job opportunities um, because of having brought mass transit to that part of Philadelphia. yeah, Yeah, that's fascinating. And then the other thing that we've been thinking about is really, is there a way in which we can convert um, the key uh, areas of, of weakness in and challenge in the neighborhoods around us into key areas of strength? And one of the areas we've been thinking about is so many of the areas around the zoo, neighborhoods around the zoo, have vacant lots and vacant buildings. And what is it that we can do to catalyze outcomes that relate to things like Um, urban farming concepts, hydroponic farming that could grow product that could feed our animals, and we could enter into long-term contracts to support those. And we think that's a very different way of thinking about a relationship with a neighborhood other than housing or employment. Yeah, and there are are other models, like Grayston Bakery has Ben and Jerry's that buy their brownies, right? And so having that kind of steady... Uh, purchaser is really very supportive for an organization that that has a double mission, um, you know. And I think that when you're talking about um, the the neighborhood around it, it's an area with enormous potential. You're not that far from the children's, you know, uh, the Please Touch Museum for Children. Not so far from Parkside, which has um, a, a big park and wonderful old houses, et cetera, that have. Um, been down on their luck a little bit. But I think one of the things that we've discussed, one one of the things that's obvious is right now for most visitors at the zoo, they drive in and they drive out. Exactly. Right. They, they exactly. don't stay in the community. Um, and if there was a way that you could be uh, a catalyst for making it a destination for a variety of things, that would really be transformative. So true. And I think if you sort of look at the earned income model, it's not just the number of people who come and visit the zoo. It's number of people times how long they stay. Yeah. 
the longer you stay, uh, the more revenue, the more um, uh, things you're going to need and buy and spend. And to the extent that that can be spent in the neighborhood in addition to the zoo, I think it can have a huge impact. So yes, indeed, I think that is the right way to look at it. And I think that it can serve the zoo and it can serve the neighborhoods in a key way. Uh, It is curious um, that these neighborhoods um, are among the poorest in Philadelphia, the highest level of of poverty, least level of educational attainment, um, and yet they sit in a core area that is um, uh, visually, um, not maybe not to your listeners as clear, but visually one of the most beautiful areas of Philadelphia. Yeah, it is beautiful. Um, and uh, its proximity to University City and Center City makes it incredibly interesting. And yet it has not seen the revitalization that other parts of Philadelphia have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, conversations like this certainly make <laughs> us optimistic. I'm going to remind our listeners that you are <clears throat> listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Where we were speaking with Vic Dewan, CEO of the Philadelphia Zoo, talking about their role uh, in the community, both to the animals, to the you know neighbors of the zoo, et cetera. Um, I'd love to shift a little bit and talk about um, innovation because when I you know in, in previous conversations with you, that's one thing I'm often struck by is the really strategic innovation that has happened at the zoo. We're talking about the property. If you were to look at the Philadelphia, it's kind of D-shaped, right? Like it's very landlocked. It's got a highway that's going nowhere anytime (laughs) soon on one side Hmm. and the river. It is what it is. You've got this footprint. I I understand it's sort of modest size as compared to a lot of zoos because it's America's first zoo. Yeah, that's correct. So it's been around for quite a while. You walk into a role, you've got this challenge what did innovation look like? Yeah, so now let's go back to, so you come in and the first order of business is build the financial model so it's sustainable for the longer term. And then the next order of business is, okay, then, so now what are you going to do? Um, How are you going to redefine the organization, both programmatically as well as mission-wise, to be able to address that, always remembering that you're a zoo and you're putting animal welfare first? And so what we thought about, um, Sandy, was we thought, okay, we're going to take what has been for so many years and describe by so many as our key weakness, which is the weakness of our size relative to the number of people Mm -hmm. that come there. And we said, okay, uh, how are we going to turn that into an opportunity and into a strength? And and it was a fairly simple shift, which is stop thinking two dimensions, start thinking three dimension. And you say that's simple, but yeah, it was simple. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> and so, rather than having what zoos have had for more than 150 years, which is static exhibits with one animal or one species per exhibit, what we said is. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the third dimension of height and we're going to connect these exhibits and allow our animals to be able to leave their home exhibit areas and travel the entire 42 acres of the zoo. (laughs) And as a result, give them an opportunity to explore and see things and have an experiential base. The animals have an Mm -hmm. experiential base that is so interesting and so profound that visitors are going to be able to be really moved by that. And then build a business model around it, which is less expensive than building full exhibits because you're building connections and bridges across those. And that has been uh, when we started out. Um, it was and met, you were the first, correct? We were the first, yeah. and, and we're now, now yeah. a model that eight other zoos have copied. I think or? twenty-six 20? zoos wow. in six countries. Wow. Yeah. 
Um, and it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a change. It's an, a way of thinking differently that starts with not what is the visitor seeing, but what is it that, that the visitor is experiencing that is based and rooted in animal well-being, and it has been profound. We've been measuring the impact on our visitors. We've been measuring the impact on our animals, their health, their outlook, and the way they're looking at it. And, and that has led us in a very different path, both the business model as well as the way in which we create the experiential elements. And as you can imagine, it has changed everything yeah. because so many times people come in and go, well, I want to go see the giraffes. Where are the giraffes? And you can say, well, they're in the giraffe holding in the exhibit area, but they could actually be in a number of different places across the yeah. zoo. And for our listeners who, who can't visualize this, imagine <laughs> because it's hard, right? yeah. like a McDonald's play place, <laughs> but zoo-sized. You know, you've got you know sort of tubes that go across and – you can be, you know, walking along and have a tiger, six hundred pound tiger, however big they are, walk, walking across your head, and you watch him looking at the goats, you yeah. know, and you and, and then sometimes they think, well, I wonder what they think of all the phone use. <laughs> you know, you see the animals like, what, what's this little object? Um, but they really do have, yeah. you know, it's this very not overwhelming, but very rich experience. At, you know, you walk in and you could look left, you could look right. You got a peacock in front of you on the ground. You look up and there's a tiger, and what I love, love, love about that story is it's you could have walked in and said, this is a deficiency of this zoo. Right. We're, you know, we have this small parcel of land. This is a shortcoming. But you really flipped it into an opportunity that led to innovation that is a win, win, win. You know, it's it's great for the zoo it's and the revenue because it's an amazing experience. It's great for the visitor. It's great. My sister's a vet. And when she hears this, she's like, oh, my. think about how much more engaging that must be for an animal. It is. You know, than, is. than the same view every day. And I think the traditional answer has always been when you encounter a situation like that, well, then you just need to grow and acquire more land. Mm -hmm. And if you think that your key um, uh, challenge uh, is your expense base, there's really no logical reason to expand out your cost base by adding more land and and continue to think two-dimensionally as opposed to thinking three-dimensionally. This is the 42 acres I have, and now how can I think about it differently? And so I think that that is an innovation that, you know, we're now eight years into it. We're learning a lot from it. We have also learned it has its deficiencies. Um, and so as we head into our next master planning effort, we built on that to do two things. One, how can we create these systems so that they can be exciting all year round, not just in particular seasons? Mm -hmm, so that's mm -hmm. been one challenge. Mm -hmm. but the second one takes me back to the question that you were asking, Cheryl, which is how can we also design our campus now so that it is not a gated community, mm -hmm. so it is not one that is sort of a picture frame around what everything else is going on around us, but is actually integrated in with the neighborhoods, is porous, is actually part of that in a way that can create a much bigger, more uh, expansive canvas of experiences. And that we're starting to think is really the, the key towards asking, answering the question of, so, so tell me again why you need a zoo in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a vestige of the 19th century. I can do all kinds of things on TV and in high def. Why exactly do I need a zoo? It begins to answer that question in a very real way and in a very emotional way for folks by connecting them experientially in a very different way. Yeah, and that's fascinating. And I think that um, one of the things that's great about the uh, the overhead innovation is it really does become an immersive experience. Like Sandy says, it's not it's not like you know if the draft is sitting in the same place and looking at you and you're looking at the draft, it's very ordered and logical. But with this, there's 
you're looking everywhere because it could be above you. It could be someplace else. You're hunting for the animals. It's it's just uh, really fascinating that way. And you're also observing how they're observing you. Yeah. Which I think is oh, a yeah. tremendously <laughs> interesting piece in yeah. in the experiential yeah. element as well. Yeah. So Yeah. It's it's you know, it's very cool right up to like a little nerve wracking because you, you look at that tiger and you're like, You are looking at me. <laughs> how thick is that fence? Well, I try I trust Vic. Yeah. I trust Vic. And the other thing a point that I've heard you said before that that hasn't come out yet is that um, not only did you not go the let's buy more land, let's think three-dimensionally, but then the small footprint of the zoo or the relatively small f- footprint became an asset for Correct. the overhead thing because the odds of you seeing an animal no, in yeah. the overhead are very high. I've, every time I've gone, I've seen people want you know, the That's animals right. wandering yes. through. That's right. We're, and so... we're very spoiled to have the <laughs> zoo here, and, and we've my family and I have now visited other zoos and our son is like, yawn. Like, where are the animals? Because you go into Philly and it's like animal, animal, animal. Like the, yeah. that density yeah. creates such a rich experience. Whereas, you know, if if land were if money were no object and you had the, all the land in the world, maybe they'd be, you know, huge exhibits and you'd have to spend four hours to see a small percentage. Whereas, you know, you yeah. can see a ton. Yeah. And Sandy, I'd say there's one more thing uh, that I think is has been important for us, which is that because you're a relatively small footprint, anytime you have a new idea or a new concept – and you want to introduce it, it means that something else has to go out. And I think that most nonprofits struggle with the notion of stopping things. Mm -hmm. It's not starting new ideas. We're all good at starting new ideas. This world is full of problems and things to solve. The issue is in your core uh, operating model, are there things that are not delivering at the highest level, the return that you had expected, mm-hmm. the return on expense, the way of looking at efficiency? And so being a small footprint forces the discipline of also going back and saying, okay, if we're going to do that because that's so interesting and exciting, what are we going to stop doing? Because we don't have the capacity to just go out and acquire another three, four acres and just build on that. And and I'm uh, smiling at that because we're going through at, at the Social Impact Initiative some of that same effort sort of saying if we want to do this new stuff, what are we what are we saying no to? What hasn't what hasn't had the effort and, and response that we want? Right. And we've we've done made those kind of hard decisions and, right. and said nope we're not we're not doing that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, sort of a minimalist approach as that becomes in vogue, right? You get something comes into your closet, something's got to go out, but you, you keep that sort of um, filled with only the best. Yeah. Um, were there any particularly difficult decisions of things that had to? to retire at the zoo? You know, I think that um, uh, one of the things that's wonderful about working at a nonprofit organization is the passion that our staff brings uh, to the work that they do, their commitment to that. Um, That has both sides to it. Uh, There's a change management aspect of when change needs to occur. It's oftentimes uh, more difficult in nonprofits for that change to occur. And so, um, yes, I mean, I think when you bring that passion, when someone says, okay, we're going to stop the thing. I've known this wombat for 10 years. And this thing that you're so feeling so proud of and and attached to. And so one of the most difficult things for us was our decision to have our elephants leave. Um, And that occurred in 2008, 2009. And at its core, it was, could you provide the highest level of care to these animals, incredibly intelligent, incredibly social animals, in this climatic condition under these set of circumstances, and we reach the decision no. Yeah. And and yet we will find a way, using some innovative ways of thinking about that, to make sure that all the people in this area can connect with what the plight of elephants are, the key issues they're mm-hmm. facing, 
But there are not going to be elephants physically at the Philadelphia Zoo, but experientially, we're going to really work hard to figure out a way to make that happen for people that's real and authentic. So I think always when we make those changes, mm-hmm. what's the, what are the things that are in our control that we can change to get the impact, but not necessarily at that level of cost or with that operating model? Yeah, that must have been a huge decision. I remember when that decision happened, there were, of course, people who were very upset because Indeed. they liked seeing the elephants. And, and again, coming at it from the, the elephant perspective, it's sort of like, yes, but this is not the best for them. And I think we'll come back with ways in which they can be close to understand and experience in a way that can also be right for the elephants. And so stay tuned for that. Um, maybe you'll invite me back and I'll be able yeah, to share some I'm, of those I'm things. I'm trying to even guess what that might yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I know we're, we're ending up uh, having to end the show soon, the segment soon, but um, I think also, too, one of the things that's been great about the zoo is it is very educational. Your, your signposts just don't just don't just say, you know, Siberian tiger kind of stuff. You talk a lot about the environment where they live, some of the, the threats, conservation, et cetera, et cetera. So it really is seeing the animal, but also understanding more about their world. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that is a core part of our mission and being able to engage people in a way that's more just simply looking passively, uh, but also understanding not only what the threats are and what the issues are that those animals are facing, but what role people can do uh, and play in their everyday lives to make a difference. The thing that has been a wonderful challenge for us that we have embraced is how to do that across different learning styles and across Mm. different um, uh, ways in which people um, uh, learn and absorb information. Um, We are, as I said earlier, the most diverse destination in Philadelphia uh, by far. Um, And and by ethnic origin, by income levels. and, And so how do you convey information to people for whom English may not be their first language? How do you convey it across a spectrum of visitors so that it's not dumbed down um, or it's not put down at a level or too esoteric at the other side? Mm -hmm. And then how do you engage people where they're at and move them rather than where you want to tell? So how do you become a good listener and engager rather than always a speaker? And I think that that has led us to really thinking about the other thing that our smallness gives us, which is intimacy. So our staff can be intimate with you. They can do keeper talks. They can engage you. Our education staff, our interns can be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had marketers on before who talk about the, I think the technical term actually is pester power, where children... Oh. Like when they want something, they ask something like 32 times or something, <laughs> you know, and and the zoo has this power. You know, we go through and they've got the palm oil exhibit and, you know, the sort of negative environmental impacts. Of, I'm like, it's a matter of minutes before our son is checking the labels of products going, well, I see at the zoo, this is bad for Dimitri and Wiz the tiger. So, you know, we can't buy this toothpaste anymore. So there really is power in, in educating that, um, you know, generation to there start is. to there make is. change yeah. because- you know, a zoo is it's a it's a rich it's place for children. It's very very important to understand that that it can be a core determinant, but also make sure that the experience is also compelling for the adult that must accompany the child, <laughs> so that we are not creating things that are boring for the adult <laughs> and interesting for the child. I yeah. think you have to bring yeah. it up to a level sure. that both can engage. Yeah, which is a sweet spot for families. Indeed. So, and, and Indeed. I think that's why so many people love the zoo. If you haven't been and you're in the Philadelphia area or travel to Philadelphia. Can't say enough good things. You can be my guest. We've got the Family Plus membership. Give us a call. (laughs) Um, But uh, Vic, thank you so much for joining us today. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.